Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Joining me by phone this morning is Jim Langle, who is an educator and author. And the topic today is Seven Steps to Better Schools. Jim, welcome to the show again. Thank you, Pat. Yeah, I, I would be remiss if I didn't tell folks that if the name sounds familiar, uh, Jim was on the show a couple of weeks ago to talk about wake boats in Vermont lakes and his desire to have restrictions placed on their use here in Vermont. And we had a great conversation with he and uh, Jack. Oh, forgot Jack's last name. Sorry, Jim. Wit. Witness. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's an age thing. It's early in the morning. Um, anyway, that was a great show. But the reason I asked uh, Jack on the sh- uh, Jim on the show today is because of his book. And let me give you a little bit of his background because he has got an impressive bio. He's worked in government, academia, industry organizations for 42 years. After serving in the Peace Corps, he began his career as a public school teacher in Vermont, where he eventually became deputy commissioner of education. And much of his work concentrates on the application of digital technologies in teaching and learning. Uh, Jim consults with organizations around the world on this topic. And he's authored eight books on education and communication. So we're very honored to have you here. Um, we met through the wake boats, but in reading your bio, I went, ooh, education is such a huge topic these days that um, if you've got a solution and only seven steps, I have to have you on the show. Um, could could we start, though, before we get into the book in detail, which was very interesting, by the way. I read it cover to cover. Um could you talk about schools today? So we have um, kind of a, a floor, a basis for your recommendations. Sure. Schools today. Let's talk about Vermont schools first. Okay. With, with which I'm more familiar. Vermont has had good schools all along. Back in the 80s, when I was working at the Department of Education, Vermont schools were among the best in the nation if you measured them by the students' uh, average SAT scores and their going to college, we were pretty good, and we still are. Our schools in Vermont have some of the smallest classes. Our schools are more tied to their communities than schools in other places that, that I've worked in. So we have a good thing going here. Our schools are small. Our schools are governed by elected school boards who pay attention to what their community needs and what their children need. This isn't true all over the country. Schools over the last decade in particular have have become politicized. They have uh, been subject to the partisan political and ideological forces that have split our country apart. The sad thing is that those forces are beginning to find their way into the school boards in many places around the country. Not so much yet in Vermont, but in many places uh, that has split not only the social community, but also the school community. We can't let that happen in Vermont. Right. Jim, the, uh, one thing that um, when you were talking reminded me of a concern I have um, 
I know our schools compared to other states um, are pretty solid, but we've the United States has slipped uh, worldwide in um, where it used to be as far as education. So I get worried about comparing us to the to the states, whereas the states are now falling behind other nations. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, you're, what you say is absolutely true, Pat. We've pretty much stayed the same since the 1980s. Our level of education, the number of students that go to college, the, the test scores, if you believe them, we've been pretty flat since the 80s. During that time, 40 years, the rest of the world has moved ahead with education. They're educating more of their students with deeper learning. They're building more schools sending more people to college, using more technology. They've been moving up while we've been standing still. Well, maybe those things you recommend in this book will shake them up a little bit and they'll pay attention. Um, I wrote you a, a little note about we are actually changing the format or changing the type of um, uh, test that we give the kids to um um, to um, judge um, their um, uh, what's the word um, to judge their abilities in education and um, um, we're we're ch- changing that and I don't know much about the new um, the new um, tests that we are that we're going to be looking at and have you heard about that at all? I still even though I'm retired here in Vermont enjoying that peaceful retirement here in Duxbury, <laughs> watching the, the snow filter down, I keep up with what's going on bit by bit. And yes, uh, there are they change the tests frequently. When I was teaching back in 1972, we gave all of my students in the fifth and sixth grade the Iowa test of basic skills. We give them the test in April. I'd get the results back in sometime in the middle of summer. And it would tell me that Ricky was in the 52nd percentile. And it would tell me that Susie was in the 92nd percentile. Pretty much useless information for me <laughs> as a teacher. There you go. <laughs> we, now, the tests that we give today are no different. What they do is they ask multiple choice questions. And then they rank students from 0 to 100 on a 100 percentile scale. Uh, depending on how many questions they answer correctly. The, all of those tests do the same way. They really don't measure if the student knows anything. Huh. They measure how that, how many questions that student answered correctly compared with all the other students that took the test that day. They're of very little use to teachers huh. in the long run. And yes, you can change them and you can set the questions up in such a way that that different groups of children perform differently. In other words, the way you select the questions will determine who's going to score well and who's not going to score so well. Interesting. You can construct a, you can construct a test by, by, that will make uh, students with limited English proficiency, let's say new immigrants who've just come to this country, you can make them score poorly. By asking them a lot of questions with complex vocabulary and grammar. Hmm. On the other hand, if you ask very simple questions about technical things, those students do better. Um, the, the testing has been one of the things that has hurt 
this mass multiple choice testing has really hurt education all around the world, not just in the United States. We are the only ones who rely solely on these multiple choice tests to measure our academic performances. Most of the other countries that I've worked in use a variety of measures to see how well the students are doing. Well, I'm gonna, I've gotta do a show on this new test. It's Cognia, C-O-G-N-I-A, and it focuses on equity, which is very interesting, and I want to find out about that, so, uh, we'll have to do some, uh, some digging. Maybe we'll have you back on that show. Um, I, but I do want to talk about your book, um, and you had in the book something that you were calling the great debate about two sides of the education issue. One side talks about the poor performance of urban students, blames the teachers union, and calls for multiple choice tests that you're just talking about, while the other side defends the status quo, blames the students, and calls for fewer tests and more money. What is that about? Well, that's not so much a Vermont issue as it is an American ah. urban issue. Many of our many of our urban schools in big cities, where there are a large percentage of poor people, poor families, where there's a large percentage of families who don't have English as their second language, well, those students don't do as well on those multiple choice tests as our Vermont students do, for obvious reasons. It's not the school's fault. It's not the student's fault. But the the politicians, if you will, want to blame somebody, and they often blame the teachers' union, saying Mm -hmm. it's the teacher's fault that these urban students who don't speak English and come from poor backgrounds without a book in the home, uh, it's the teacher's fault that they're not doing well. The teachers' unions, on the other hand, defend the status quo, but neither of them, neither side, Pat, is really looking at what do these students need right. to move forward. What? How should our schools be structured for the world around us? The, the beginning of my book, you'll remember, there's a picture of uh, Winslow Homer's country school right. with the uh, school teachers standing there. There are about a dozen kids in the room ranging from age four to age 18. And she has got the only tools she has are a chalkboard <laughs> and about a dozen books. And she had to teach those kids. This happened in Vermont. Uh, it still happens. We still have one-room school in Elmore. Uh, and so the schools in many places in Vermont and in our big cities and in our suburbs haven't changed much since I went to school. Yeah. I, I went when, back. Oh, I'm sorry. I when I looked at that picture, to, I remember my teacher. She also had a ruler back then. <laughs> it was used for me- not just for yes, exactly. distances, right. as, as I recall. Yeah. But our schools are not changing quickly enough today. The world has changed quickly in the last 50 years. Our schools haven't. When I went a few years ago to my high school 50th reunion, went back and had a tour of the school, it, it was identical. Huh. Nothing had changed right. in 50 years right. since I went there. There's something wrong there, Pat. Yep. I, uh, we're, I agree. We're keeping schools that, you know, schools should change to match the world around us. Right. Look how different it is, how different the way we get information, how different the way we work, how different the way we learn things. And yet if I walk into the school the 
it's just like it was when I was there. Right. But the kids' home life and the things around them after they leave that classroom are completely different. They're, they rely on all the technology that's available to them. I have a caller on the phone. Fred, thanks for hanging on. Do you have a question for Jim? Yeah, it's a question or a comment. First of all, very interesting. Uh, the uh, military now is having a real problem trying to get qualified people to join the Army. They discovered that the people that are you know, qualified to take the uh, written examination have a big problem with reading comprehension, word knowledge, word usage, uh, arithmetic reasoning. I mean, they can, they can give them a calculator and they just do the four bangers, you know, add subtraction, multiply, and divide, and give them a calculator, and they can't even do it with a calculator. So anyways, we have a national uh, defense problem with uh, education. And apparently... And this is very interesting. There are approximately 35 million people in the uh, military age group from 18 to, I think it's 25, 35 million. And most of them, as a matter of fact, the ones that are smart enough to pass the test, they're so smart, they don't volunteer to take the test. And so what's going to happen is, the uh, military is going to be forced to go back to the draft. That's the only way we're going to be able to keep people in the uh, get people in the uh, military. Fred, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think we've got the essence of of your question. And um, Jim, can you respond to Fred for us? Absolutely, Fred. You're correct in that it's difficult to find people who are fully qualified for the new military. The military isn't what it was uh, back in when I was of draftable age. It's different from what it was when my father served in World War II. Uh, the military is looking for people with a whole different set of skills today, problem-solving skills, skills to get along with other people, skills to make a quick decision with limited information. So the old skills from the old days that were useful for a military or for a soldier 50 years ago or 100 years ago, that's not what's needed today. And that's another reason that our schools need to look at what are the, what are the things that people be, need to be able to do out in the real world to be successful, whether it's in the military or in business or in uh, education. They need to look at what's going on today and then figure out how to make the schools prepare students for the real world that's around them. I agree with you, Fred. Yeah, I actually had, years ago, I knew the president of VTC, and he said that they had to spend the first couple of months getting the kids from high school up to speed on the old three R's um, before they could start jumping into the curriculum at the tech center. So it's that issue has been around yeah. a little while and i think you're right we need to sure. address it quickly yeah. anyway um jim thanks fred um you talked about explaining your approach to creating what you refer to education 3.0 in schools and you listed i'm going to read them and maybe you can uh, talk about them you talked about the importance of engaging students strengthening teachers connect learning advance assessment and transform the transformation process could you talk about how that that approach um, will get us to 3.0 as you envision it 
Yeah, the book is based on the premise that we've had three epochs in education. This is true in Vermont. It's true in, in uh, uh, all over the world. First, we, we built our schools to train farmers, uh, people who work the land. And we set up the schools just like in that painting of Homer, uh, of Homer's classroom. Uh, we, tr- we prepared them to work on the land, stay close to home, use very simple tools. That's education 1.0. Education 2.0 is when we prepared them to work in the factory and work in the office where they did one thing repetitively all day with machinery, uh, you know, stuck close to their work and obeyed orders. Well, we transformed our schools from agricultural to industrial training. But now we're in a new world, education 3.0. Education now needs to reflect not the factory, not the farm. Very few Vermonters are going to work in a factory or a farm. We have to prepare students for the real world that's out there. That's, that's the premise of my book. How do we do that? Well, first thing is we've got to engage the students again. All of the surveys that are done about uh, whether students find school to be fulfilling or challenging, they have been declining uh, over the last 30 or 40 years. If you poll students, they say, the school is no longer engaging me. We need to find a way to engage them. We also need to find a way to strengthen and give support to our teachers. Teachers are not afraid to change, but they need the support and they need the leadership from their school boards and the state education department to to make the changes that they'd like to make. Third one, we need to connect what the students are doing in school to the world outside. For instance, many schools today still teach students to derive square roots, and they spend several weeks in math class uh, practicing a skill that nobody uses in the <laughs> real world today. Okay, so we need to connect the school and match it to what's really out there. We can't just take the curriculum that we've inherited from previous generations and just teach it over again. And as we've discussed already, Pat, we have to test in a different way. Multiple choice tests are not the way to measure whether people know anything. And we have to just think about the whole process of how we define our schools what the kids do all day, and what the curriculum is. That's really great. I particularly like the connecting learning because I, I've i said this a million times on the show, you stick me in an auditorium with 300 other kids listening to a professor, I probably would walk out not grasping much of anything, but put something where my hands are around it and touching it, feeling it, and learning how to use it, mm-hmm. I do well, because that's okay. how I learn. I learn by doing, by seeing, not yep. by being lectured to. And um, I, I don't know why we haven't um, used that more, that approach of how do you learn, rather than how smart are you. Remember years ago when I went to school, probably you too, we had us in classes that were really based on grades, um, and, and level mm-hmm. of smarts yep. and, and everybody knew what class they were in and, um, it was not a good way to teach because if you were in the lower class, doesn't mean you weren't smart, just meant you learned differently. And I, I never quite right. can understand why they don't uh, really uh, learn how, how do I learn? What's the best way to get me to learn? Yeah. And you know, many teachers 
recognize that. And let me give you an example. Let's let's compare your lecture classroom with 300 students with what goes on in one of the schools close to me. My our our children and our, our daughters and our sons-in-law are all involved in education, and I see what goes on in the schools. Let me give you an example: the chicken curriculum. This is a curriculum we see in many Vermont schools right around here where the children raise chickens. They build a chicken coop. The students with their teachers build a chicken coop. They get some chickens. They hatch the eggs. They get the chickens. They bring them up. They feed them. They take care of them. They make sure they have water. They sell the eggs to the cafeteria so they eat the results. And by doing this, they learn biology, certainly, the life of a chicken, the growth of a, of, from an embryo to a live animal. <clears throat> they learn the economics of how much food do we need to buy to produce this many eggs that will sell for this price. Involved in that is economics, mathematics. They read up on the health of chickens. What do we do when a chicken gets sick? What do we do when one chicken is by all the others. They learn sociology, all from the study, the chicken curriculum, we call it. How much more <laughs> engaging is that than sitting down and deriving square roots? Oh, you got my vote. I, I would much prefer the, the former rather than the latter, because I'd ask the question, why? When you're teaching me square roots, it's like, like so, why? But I, I get the chicken part. I, I understand how that yep. works. And, and they won't ask why. They'll see. It's, it's, right. it's obvious what the purpose. Everything that you, that a student does in school should have a clear purpose. Exactly. It, it should be tied to and connected to a problem that's out there in the real world. How do we feed people? How do, with scarce resources, how do we heat our homes when fossil fuels are running out? These are the kind of questions that students to, should be working on. Their mathematics should be taught, not out of context on a worksheet, but in line with the price of natural gas versus the price of solar, uh, for instance. They should learn their economics by looking at net metering in Vermont. And how does the economics of net metering work out if everybody puts up solar panels? These are real problems. They're full of math. They're full of political science. They're full of sociology. They're full of literature. This is how we should begin our teaching. I noticed, Jim, in your book, and you, you alluded to a little bit when you were talking about Homer, in every section, whether you were talking about Education 101, 102, or I mean, uh, 2.0 or 3.0, you use pictures to explain what you were talking about, and I found that fascinating because um, you'd show a picture. I'm going to skip to 2.0 about factory workers, which we just talked about, and then you ask the reader to say, "What's what do you think's on their minds?" The people that are in that picture, what's in their hands? Uh, what do they hope for? You put us in in the pictures with the in, uh, with the workers. Up, oh, Jim, I've got to take a quick break here. Uh, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vote for, oh, for Vermont Viewpoint, and I will be right back with you. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. 
If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Hi there, it's Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint here on WDEV. My guest is Jim Lingle, who is an uh, educator and author, and we're talking about his new book, Seven Steps to Better Schools. Jim, we were talking about your use of pictures, which I thought was fascinating. Um, you went from farm by, by uh, a painter called Homer, then you went to factory workers, and then in 3.0, which is what you're hoping to get us to, is a very modern-looking office space with all the technology. Um, why did you choose to, to use those pictures as as a way to get our get us thinking? Because pictures help you to think in a different way than words do. <laughs> so that the words in the book are not quite enough to let the reader picture in their mind what school looks like, what it looked like when they went to school, what it looks like today, what it should look like tomorrow. A picture is a very, is in my experience, a better way to think about what a school should look like than words. Words get in the way. So when I work with, with people to help redesign their schools, I, ha- I start not with words on paper, but with pictures. No words allowed. Hmm. People sit in small groups around a table, and a student is at the table, a teacher, a parent, a school board member, the superintendent, five or six of them sitting around a table, and their first task is draw me a picture of what a classroom should look like in the future for your school. And they all contribute. All five of them contribute, and they draw a picture. And they argue about what should be in it, and they discuss it, and they think differently about school when they draw a picture. If you ask them to write it down, you get much less valuable stuff because the words get in the way. Most people, students, teachers, parents, administrators, uh, government leaders, have an idea in their head of what a school should look like if it was really to match the world outside and really to match the needs of our students. Let them draw the picture. Then they can use words to talk about Mm. the picture. But it's a good way to start and a good way to get your thinking off in a different direction. That's great. I, I, I was just thinking about um, COVID, um, and I and you look at the teachers and teaching by by Zoom or Teams or whatever. They, that's a whole different skill set, and um, I, I doubt many of our teachers were prepared to make that that switch. Um, and I don't know if that's ever going to go away, Zoom or, or any other medium that you use. But it's isn't it a whole different way to, to reach out to the kids and keep them engaged, um, something they're going to need to learn? For sure, Pat. I think COVID showed us, number one, that it is possible to teach and learn when the students are right in front of you in the classroom. Our, our teachers in Vermont and all over the country – did yeoman's work mm-hmm. in, in switching the way they had to teach. Right. My daughter, my daughter's a music teacher here at Crossit Brook Middle School. And how do you teach music when your students aren't there with you in the classroom? <laughs> well, she had to fi- she had to figure that out. 
and so did the third grade teacher, and so did the social studies teacher. They had to figure out, how do I connect with my students? How do I keep them learning when they're at home one day at school, part of the time when I never know if we're going to have school tomorrow or not? Mm. How do I rethink schools? I think it was a, a very interesting exercise. It also proved that we can do it. Um, now, it's not good for students to be away from, they need the social experience. They need to be working in groups face-to-face, for sure, for their social development, for their intellectual development. But we showed that a lot of the schoolwork can be done uh, over uh, the, the, all of these new technologies. I think that was a positive. Right. There are many negatives from COVID in our schools, but there were a few positives that came out of it. And I, I agree with you. They did yeoman's work to to completely. I mean, that's just so completely different than what they're used to, and and they did it. Um, so kudos to them, um, Jim. What I'd like to do is uh, read off the seven steps that you talk about in this book, and obviously each each chapter focuses on one of these steps, and then we can go back and and talk about them. Uh, it's one, recognize the need for change. Two, set the vision. Three, scan the system. Four, plan of action. Five, adopt the plan. Six, build education 3.0. And seven, monitor and refresh. And when I read the book, I, I was very much um, drawn to the, the number one step because I think once you understood the need for change, the other steps weren't so difficult to grasp because you understood where you're starting from. So could you talk a little bit about how one gets to recognize the need for change? Well, it's, you know, the first step to solving your problem is to realize that you have one. Right. Um, you know, and, and many of us, many of us in the school business think that our schools are just fine. But if you ask the students, do you find school to be challenging and engaging and preparing you for the modern world? They don't think so. Nope. Uh, if, if we need, we need to recognize that our schools are not what they ought to be and that there are other visions for what a school should be that we need to think about. It's not that our schools are falling apart. They're doing an okay job, but they could do a much better job. And now we have the opportunity to change them. So you need to get people around that, around that recognition that there could be something better. And you know, most teachers and most students would like to change their schools. They would like school to be different from what it is. And they have some really good ideas on what that should be. And that leads us, Pat, to step two, which is let those people envision what school should be. Not the politicians, not the education experts in the think tanks. It's the teachers and the students and the parents and the local business owners those are the people that know the community. They know what the world, the needs of the world outside are. Let them sit down at a table and talk about what their school should look like, school by school, not state by state, but school by school. Jim, you you um, um, provided a great deal of uh, uh, detail about uh, the day in the life of a student that you named Sally. 
Um, and it was a very interesting exercise to go through, um, you know, every 15 minute uh, intervals, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, and it really got you to have a feeling of what Sally's day was. What were you hoping people would learn from from that exercise? That it's important, Pat, to look at school not through the eyes of the teacher or the school board member or the governor or the board of education, but through the eyes of the student. What are they experiencing as they come to school, as they go through the day, as they do the work assigned to them? What is their experience like? And so one of the exercises that I make my groups do is sketch out a day in the life of the student the way it ought to be. What should they be doing? If what we're doing now is not satisfactory and not getting us where we want to be, well, what do you, what's better? What should that day be like so that the student is engaged, so that they're learning more than they do now, so that they're learning the things they really need for their own development and the things their community needs so that they can be a productive and contributing citizen through the eyes of the student. Mm-hmm. And so we make little videos. I have the, the groups. We, often this process takes a year or two. And one of the process is the students working with their teachers produce little videos. They do play acting. They set up a scene to show this is what we think our school should be like. And they act out this new school in the videos that they make. That's real. That's that's really exciting. That is better than the three hundred people in the in the auditorium for me, anyway. You talked about uh, some principles of education um, where you focus on the student, and one in particular stuck out for me, and I even underlined it. It said students work on problems worth underlined, worth solving, and I think mm-hmm. that sentence has got a serious message in it. Could you expand on that a little? Sure. Uh, rather than walk into class and say, okay, today we're going to factor polynomials in math class in high school. Why not walk in? And what? how many students are going to be excited about that? <laughs> how many teachers are going to be motivated with that as the topic? What if the topic instead were how do we heat Vermont homes more efficiently and use less fossil fuel. Now, in solving that problem, which is an interesting one, it's worth solving because we don't know the answer to it. And it involves factoring polynomials because in order to figure out the, the heat transfer in, in my house here, where, my, where I'm losing my heat, I have to do a lot of mathematics to figure out the R value of my, my big windows and what am I going to do about that. That's a, a problem worth solving. It's got plenty of math in it. It's got a lot of reading in it. It's got a lot of science in it. Let's start there and work our way back to factoring polynomials, to learning how to read scientific vocabulary, et cetera. That is so perfect for me. And they wouldn't even know they're doing all the things you just mentioned. They're just solving a problem, right? But I like that word worth, worth solving because I think sometimes we focus on things that – Maybe we don't need any more. No, in fact, look at what's going on in the legislature these days. They're looking at the uh, uh, an act to figure out how do we change the way we heat Vermont homes. Uh. Well, it's a it's a worthwhile problem. We need to solve it. Let's put 
let's put that as a problem for our students. There you go. Don't tell them what the answer is. Don't try to convince them. They say, okay, apply mathematics, apply science, apply sociology, economics, and how would you solve the problem? And a, and a smart teacher can pull and come back to the mathematics behind it, the science behind it, the English behind it, the history behind it, and teach all the subject matter in the context of a real-life, real-world problem, one that's worth solving. Well, and, and taking your approach, you get everyone's buy-in. And I think once people buy into the vision, the rest of the steps um, might come, maybe not naturally, but it's going to take some work, but without any resistance is a good word, I think, because they have already bought yeah. into the vision. Because whose vision is it? It's theirs. <laughs> exactly. In other words, it's not a vision. You're not coming in from the outside and selling them a vision. You, they, it's their vision. They're motivated to make it happen. Well, that's cool. So moving on with the, some of the other steps here, the next one on your list was scan the system. And could you talk a little bit about that for us? Sure. Let's suppose you had the students and the teachers and a business people in town develop a video of what school should be like. And they show that video around the community. And now they take make another video. What's our school doing today? And how is that different from the video we made of how it ought to be? So what we're doing now is comparing the school as it is to the school as it ought to be. That's called scan the system to see how far away we are from the ideal situation. And that gives you, you know, the things that need to be fixed. And then you make a list. Okay, right now the students are all doing the same thing at the same time, whether they're learning anything or not. That's, and our vision is people are working at different rates on the things they need to work on. If they already know it, they don't have to do it again. If they need more time to figure it out, they'll get more time. Excellent. Well, how do we fix that? And that becomes the next step, Pat, number four, the plan for action. I'm here with Jim Langle, who's an educator and author, and we were just going to skip over to it the the step that he um, was just mentioning about the plan for action. Jim, could you tell us about that step and what comes next? Sure. Once you have a... a a good vision for what you'd like your school to be, and you know what it is today. You you look at the places that it doesn't match, and then you list those down one by one, and that becomes your plan for action. So let's say the first one is we want to build the curriculum around real-world problems rather than strictly academic problems. Well, what do we need to do to make that happen? What that needs to happen in the curriculum and with the teachers in order to do that. That becomes our plan for action. And this doesn't happen immediately. It might take a year or two for us to change the curriculum, reorganize the students, reorganize the schedule of the day so that we can have the kind of school that we dreamed about in our vision. That's that's really um, excellent. makes so much sense. Um, and that's that's really what you're referring to as that that education 3.0. It's it's that that next step, that vision. Um, you then talk yep. about how you adopt the plan, uh, and I'm assuming all hands on deck on that one. 
Well, you've got to get the, you've got to build community support. Our schools exist in a in a community. We have the taxpayers, the parents, the business people, the teachers, the students, the school board, the select men. All of these people have a voice. We're a democracy, especially in Vermont. They they need to be aware of this new vision for the school. Now, many of them will have been involved in creating the vision, so you will immediately have support. But you have to get everybody on board to say, yes, this is the direction we want to go. Yes, we'll support the changes that you need to make for us to get there. You know, this is very similar, Jim. Um, I just had on uh, the executive director for uh, Vermont Rural Development, and they're going to Northfield in a couple of weeks to start a, a visioning process um, where they bring in people from all over uh, uh, different walks of life in Northfield, different places, Norwich, um, the man on the street sort of thing, and uh, to, to talk about what would they like to see Norwich be, and very similar to this process. So I think it's a, a process that's been tried and it's tried and true. People use this type of engagement to build something really solid. Um, and so I'm, I'm very glad to see this in education. Um, the next thing, oh, and I love this, that's the section you were just talking about. I was laughing because you talked about who, what, why, when, where, and how. I mean, those are questions we've been asked in a whole lot of different courses over the years. When you're writing, when, when you're doing, thinking about things, the who, what, why, when, and where, and how. So, um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, as they say, not necessarily rocket science, but, uh, you need, you need yeah. somebody to guide you through this, I would think, but it's very exciting. Um, when you get to, um, you called it the penultimate chapter outlines how you build to education 3.0, what, what you need to do to get everybody, um, their skills developed, get the right technologies in place. Um, and I, I didn't see much here, maybe I'm completely wrong, that, that cost a lot of money. It's just rethinking the way you do business. Is that correct? Yeah, it's changing. For instance, remember the chicken curriculum. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's some expense in the chicken curriculum. You need to buy the chickens and you need to find a space for the for the chicken coop. <laughs> uh, and mostly you need to stop doing something else so that you have time right. to build the chicken coop and feed the chickens. Well, the biggest decision turns out to be what are we not going to do anymore to give us time to do what we really ought to be doing? And that becomes the hardest thing to do because it's very difficult to take things off the table mm-hmm. that have been on the table for 50 years. Because we've always Are done it this way, stop? right? We've always done Are it this we, way. That's right. Yeah. Are we going to stop teaching um, uh, deriving square roots so we have time to do some of the more important things? That becomes the hardest thing. It also, one of the other things is we look at the day in the life of a student, not just the school day, mm-hmm. but the whole day, 24 hours. Where does the student spend his or her time? What are they doing for those 24 hours? They're only in school for six hours, so they have 18 hours. Well, that time is just as important as the time in school, and how they spend it 
is an important consideration for our families and communities. That also becomes a big question when we do this with, with community groups. How do we recapture the day of a student to be more productive so that they become better contributors so that they can learn more? And make them feel better about their day, I would say, because they can look back and, and point to achievements, um, which yes, makes everyone right. feel at good. Least, at least make them aware of it. One of the exercises we do is you send your students home with a, a big circle like a clock face with 24 hours in it, and they keep track of what they do. What did you do from 6 to 7 in the morning? I slept. What did you do from 7 to 8? I ate my breakfast and went on a bus ride to school. Oh, and they go through and they just record what they mm-hmm. do in a typical day. And then they bring that back to school and they talk about it with their teachers and the other students. They bring it to the dinner table. They talk about that big circle with their parents and their siblings. And we really look beyond the schoolroom, beyond the six hours of school, to look at what's happening to our students. Where are they spending their time? That is really great. We have one more step to go and not, not um, enough time, I don't think, to, to get into it in that depth because I have a, the last step is monitor and refresh, which is something we should all do. The programs that That's are right. implemented in state government, anything, yep. just keep looking at it and updating it so it never gets old. Um, and I, I just, my question before we end the show, Jim, is, What's next for you? How do you get this information out to the school systems? Um, is there a way to do a pilot program? Is there um, presentations that you're making to um, to the Board of Education? Because uh, this is this is really excellent stuff. Seriously, it, Pat, it's community by community. It's the community that makes the vision for their school. It's the students and the teachers and the school boards and the parents who need to sit together to start this process of visioning. But this is already happening, and we just need to encourage people to do this, to think out of the box. I must say... um I, uh, you can go to school board meetings. Not many people attend, um, these school board meetings and that's a place to start is to g- give support to the people who are making the policy decisions and let them know you're listening and paying attention and involved. Um, so Jim, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I loved reading the book for, I learned a lot and that's always a good thing for me. Um, I wish you well and I also wish you well on your wake boat, um, um, process and getting people to think about what you're proposing there as well. I'd encourage people to take a look at this book, Seven Steps to Better Schools by Jim Lingell. Thank you, Jim. I really appreciate it. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Hi there. This is Pat McDonald your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, and I'm here with Reed Prescott, who is an artist, oil painter turned woodworker, and we're going to talk about um, Verity Mountain and about Vermont's creative economy. Reed, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, this is uh, great. I'm appropriately nervous about this because, Pat, uh, you, you've known me since before, my career hardly even took off, 
and uh, I can imagine that it's slightly nervous for you because you like uh, paint by numbers where <laughs> everything everything has a nice border, and I'm the one who's saying, hey, what happens if we paint outside the lines, and what happens if we mix these colors? So both of us should be appropriately on edge. Well, you know me, Reed. I love to chat. And just for transparency, when I moved uh, from outside of Vermont, sorry, folks, but moved from New York to Vermont, I moved into Bristol. And the, one of the first families who took me under their wing was Reed's and his sister Robin and mom Ginny. Um, we're still friends today, and it's been it's been a lot of years and a lot of great memories. You've got a wonderful family. Uh, and speaking of I, I read John Nagy's um, uh, in your bio where you, you look to John Nagy. That's how you got started um, drawing. And I think all of us, speaking of paint by numbers, remember the TV show with John Nagy um, and all wishing we could paint like him. Um, and Reed is just a, an amazing artist. I could read a little bit about him. Um, he started as a fine artist who illustrated numerous Vermont nature books, one of which I think kind of got you as your start, um, Reed, was uh, Ron Rood's uh, book where you did all the graphics. You won two Vermont waterfowl stamp competitions. And your oil painting, Twin Maple Farms, was selected by the Vermont Department of Agriculture to be the image of Vermont agriculture in 2004. You're also referred to as a storyteller. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the storytelling part of uh, your background and, and how your work reflects those stories, Reed? Well, uh, as is true with any creative person, you create from your life experience. And uh, I grew up with a grandfather who I loved. Uh, it was the first job I ever had. I was 11 or 12 years old, you know, milking cows on the farm. And my grandfather, who was a traditional Vermont farmer, also loved telling stories. So I grew up hearing stories of him working on Shelburne Farms when they were drawing hay mm. by cows and and uh, people in town and stories. I mean, so I grew up hearing story upon story. Actually, as I'm sitting here now in a, a quiet spot, I look across the room and I see a photograph of my grandfather mm. with, a mule, with a mule on each side of him. And behind him is the entrance to one of the uh, barns at Shelburne Farms. So well, awesome. uh, I think I kind of, well, and if you knew my father. I, I my did. Father. <laughs> I knew dad. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. If you wanted to take up some time, just say hi to my dad or me. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk your ear off. There you go. I remember dad well. Um, and, uh, well, so the whole family. That. And I obviously, um, I still see Robin. She, uh, visits when we visit in Maine. She visited with us, um, uh, for a, a day when she was traveling through Maine, which was really awesome. I think that's the last time I saw her. Shame on me. Yeah. Um, Anyway, um, how that translates into my art, though, is that, uh, and I didn't really think about it when I was doing oil paintings, uh, but when I capture a moment, whether it's at Basin Harbor or my backyard, I'm I'm basically drawing a line in the sand and capturing a piece of a story, um, and uh, it might be my story, but when other people look at it, it triggers. Their story and the and their mind, how they relate to it. Um, so as as fate would have it, I had a, a medical condition that uh, makes it difficult for me to draw and paint and read. 
And being an artist, I'm not going to sit back and say, oh, gosh, this is awful. It's like, <laughs> oh, what can I do now? <laughs> right. So so I started cutting up tennis rackets and field hockey sticks and uh, capturing the story in wood. Uh, I've got a lot of incredible stories that I've captured uh, because of the wood that I've used. So I basically have taken that component of my life that I do naturally, and I've carried it through each phase of my career. And now, um, I mean, it's just exploding. That's great. I'm so glad for you. Um, I always love the colors that you use. And when I think of Reed Prescott, I do think back a few years when you would go to Basin Harbor and paint all the Adirondack chairs with the water and the, um, you know, the trees and, and just beautiful. I have so many. Uh, cards, um, note cards that um, that have those Adirondack chairs on at home. I also have your book that you did with Ron Rude. That was back a few years. I have that at home. Oh, yeah. as, yeah. I have that at home that as was, well. Uh, that was cool. 1987. But, was it really? Wow. That was right about That's when, when I, I realized that I had a four-stage working process, which was overcommit, cry, pray, and meet your deadline. <laughs> I think I think I have the same one. I can't say no. It's just, there's something wrong with us. Um, well, I've I know. added a fifth stage to it, which <laughs> I call recovery. But I did 105 drawings in 45 days for that book. And Whoa. It's like, now I think about it. It's like, what was I thinking? <laughs> well, I know. I read that part where, where you know, he said, sure, how are you going to say no? And then you find out what it means, how much you actually have to draw. But for some reason, there was a picture, a drawing that you did of a rabbit. Don't ask me why, but that's what sticks in my head. And I think of Ron Rood well, and, and you and the rabbit. Well, and you know what Ron Rood's take on the rabbit was? What? Because it's on the cover of the book. Ron Rood said to me, he said, how do you get away with this as an artist? And I said, what do you mean? He said, I tell a story exactly the way it happened. And people say to me, now, Ron, did it really ha- happen that way? You draw a picture of a bunny rabbit in a berry patch, and because of the leaves, that bunny rabbit has to be four feet tall, and nobody questions it. Well, that's because you're a good artist, Reed. That's really yeah. great. You know, I, I, I have it in my head. It's funny. Every time I think of think of you and your family and stuff, that's what comes to mind. And I know you asked, uh, and you posted it on Facebook this morning. Thanks for the for the uh, PR this morning. Um that you want to talk about Vermont's creative economy and its creative culture. And it's really important, and I'll, I'll wrap it up in a little bit because I have a comment I wanted to make about that. Um, could you talk about what those things mean to you, the creative economy and creative culture? Yeah, I, I prefer the term creative culture okay. um, only because there have been a lot of uh, uh, campaigns already for the creative economy. So they've already kind of built a picture around right. what that means. And for me, creative culture goes beyond uh, what they're talking about. Uh, it's the culture in which we live in and all the creativity that comes out of that. Uh, I mean, I know there's farmer. I mean, I was in the hardware store one day and, and doing playing like I do. I was trying to figure out how to turn a, uh, uh, an ice cream maker on its side and put wood and sandpaper in there and let it electrically run and maybe sand the pieces. I needed uh, two bolts, but they needed to have reverse threads. And I'm sitting there scratching my head trying to figure out, because you can't buy a bolt with a reverse thread. 
And uh, one of my neighbors saw me there. He said, hey, what are you working on? And this guy used to be a building contractor, and I told him what I was doing. He reaches up, and he hands me a turnbuckle, and he says, you need these. And it's like, huh. oh, my God, these have reverse threads. There you go. So, I mean, it's, it's that creative yep. culture that everybody participates in and everybody's a part of. It's our history. It's uh, everything that we do. Now, we've all heard the term Yankee ingenuity. Now, this wasn't a term that was given to people in the New England states and they grew into. It was a term that was used to describe the people. I mean, it's in our genes. I mean, we're naturally creative people. And it it comes from where we are brought up and how we were raised. Well, I have to tell you, I uh, I heard Betsy Bishop talking on uh, the radio along with somebody from um, Agency of Commerce and Community Development. They were talking about advertising and selling uh, selling Vermont and and putting our best foot forward. And I wrote to her and I said, the one thing we never talk about is our creative economy. What we have per square foot, so many amazing, talented people in this, from the arts, from the theater, from songwriters, musicians, crafters like yourself, woodworking, uh, painters, they're, they're everywhere in this state, and we don't use them to attract people to this state, and I, I, I suggested that there must be a way to make a video. You know that song, We Are the World? We, I wouldn't sing it because that people would hang up and wouldn't hear you. Um, where, where you get all of our talented people to sing about Vermont and then show the pictures of your work and, and, and others and, and all the theaters we have around this state. I mean, I'd be attracted exactly. to this state, um, if I saw that. Well, that's, that's just one aspect of it. I mean, what I'm talking about being a creative culture, you can talk about our past history as well. Um, I think of the names of three people, uh, and you might not have heard of any of these people. Um, Frank Bartlett, um, Mr. Dunshee, and E.B. Eddy. Now, Frank Bartlett designed a, you've seen the pruning poles, it's a long pole with a rope on it with a clip on the end. Yeah. Frank Bartlett held the patent to the collapsible one in 1906 that folds up, and you see these all over the place. Now, Mr. Dunchy, in the 1840s, went to New Bedford. He learned photography, and I think it was embryotype photography. He ended up uh, with a studio on Tremont Street in Boston, and right now in Concord Mass's Museum and Library, is the last known living photograph taken of Henry David Thoreau that Mr. Dunchy took. Hmm. Now, Mr. Dunchy passed this along because he brought his children and his grandchildren, and as they went around the country, they were like some of the founding family to photography that ended up going around the United States. Now, not to stay in the United States, Mr. Eddy wanted to make wooden matches, and he ended up in Hull, Quebec. And he started a match company. And by 1900, he uh, he had uh, developed uh, ideas on how to uh, process paper, uh, a pulp into newsprint. He's credited as being the first Canadian to use trucks to transport goods across the country. He's written up in their politics. Uh, he's part of their politics. And if you ask somebody from Canada from two or three generations ago, if you've ever heard of the Eddie Match Company, well, it's like, well, of course, he's written up in our history books. Do you know what these three people have in common? What? 
They're all from Bristol, Vermont. Get out. And that... Mr. E.B. Eddy, who's written up in the Canadian history books, is buried in the cemetery at the foot of Stony Hill. And as a culture, we don't know anything about these people. And we don't celebrate that. I mean, that's part of our our genealogy that makes us creative. See, I, I look at a lot of the agencies in the state from an outsider's point of view, and far be it for me to tell them how to do their job, but it's like, it's like, okay, you got one room with an architect who likes to do drawings, and he doesn't really want to do anything but the drawings, and he wants everybody to come over and support him doing the drawings. And in another room, you've got a general contractor who only wants to build things, and he doesn't want to deal with anything else. And then you've got these other rooms with electricians and plumbers, and they're all, all doing their own thing. It isn't until somebody says, hey, I'd like to build a house, <laughs> that all of these people come together right. and use their talent for a bigger goal. That's great. And Rita, that's I'm going to have to, to I'm going to have to jump in here and, and take a quick break, but I love that analogy. We'll be back to talk about that more with Reed Prescott. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Be right back. Hi there. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm uh, with Reed Prescott who's an artist and oil painter turned woodworker, which we just sort of went over with us. And we were in the middle of talking about Bristol, Vermont, Reed. Who knew? Oh, and that's just touching the surface. There's others. That's you know, re- that's uh, amazing. Uh, How, is there some way you can... There's a guy named Mead. There's a guy named Mead who, as an explorer and entrepreneur, went and started a city that we now call Wichita, Kansas. Hmm. And a guy named uh, Josiah Grinnell, who uh, Horace Greeley from uh, Abraham Lincoln's cabinet said, go west, young man. I mean, we've all heard those expressions, right? Yeah. Both of those people are born in New Haven, Vermont. So the five people I've told you about only encompass like a a seven-mile circle on the entire state. And every corner of the state, every town, every village, every little nook. Has stories just like these. That's great. So, well, I love Bristol. I, mean, I think it'd be great to write a curriculum and a history book and actually teach it in schools about our entrepreneurial culture. Well, I think uh, entrepreneurial culture is is what Vermont's all about. Um, we have so many entrepreneurs and welcome uh, people who have ideas and and try to grow them. Um, it's really cool. I I wanted to ask you a question. You talked about. Um, the importance of creating a culture, and I'm going to quote here, where artists and craftsmen are seen as an equal part of our economy. I know uh, percentage-wise that the creative economy, or at least the way the state defines it, is about 9% uh, or a little bit more than 9% of our economy. What did you mean by an equal part of our economy? Because that's interesting. Um, Well, I mean, the arts somehow are looked at as, uh, like a little side culture, you know, it's like so you can go off and play and stuff, but it, it's really not hmm. serious. You know, I mean, artists starve. I mean, uh, if you're an artist, I mean, I've been doing this for 40 years, and it's still people come up to me and say, so what's your day job? Oh, seriously? <laughs> oh, my goodness. And it's like, I, I'm sorry, I don't have time for a day job. Right, exactly. Um, so and this is what this is what I mean. I mean, it's not how these organizations are run, but it's basically a cultural thing. 
So I just did a three-day show, right? And I've had many of these shows, like home and garden shows. Right. And they'll, they'll charge you $900 for the booth. Uh, they charge at the gate $20, $25 for people to get in, into the show. Um, if you ask them because you need a chair to reach up or something, they send you to the back corner to uh, the events play uh, people who will rent you a chair for the three days. These um, uh, more often than not, these organizations will get in touch with you as an artist and say, "We got one of your note cards. It's absolutely gorgeous. We'd like to use it for our brochures and all our publicity." And when an artist says, "Oh, do you have any money for that?" There's a dead silence, and they say, "Well, actually, no, we don't." Right. Um, but you know, we'll give you exposure. And it's like, gosh, I'd love to be able to tell the guy who fixes my brakes that I'll put a sign on my window, I'll put them on Facebook. I won't even charge you for fixing my brake. I mean, it doesn't work with any other profession. Unfortunately, with the arts, there's two sides to it. There's a side where, as a business, we know we need to get paid. But then there's a part where these things are like our children. So if somebody says they want to put your child up in front of all these people on a pedestal and tell them how great your child is, we're not going to say no to that, but unfortunately, it gets taken advantage of. Interesting. And artists have the ability to take and do value added. Businesses would love to understand what an artist knows about value added. Uh, in 2008, when we had the economic crash, uh, a couple of years later, I ran into Bill Sayre on Main Street in Bristol, and I jokingly said, "Bill." Uh, you need to celebrate me and my creative friends because we're going to pull us out of this economic dive. And Bill says, well, you know, you're right, but (laughs) I want to know what you're thinking. And it's like, well, I mean, gosh, we're the only ones with training on how to get things done with no money at all. There you go. (laughs) We're still working. Well said. We're still having a great time. I had a, I was look while I'm talking to you, I'm looking up the, I had a, a young lady on. There is a, uh, it's sort of like artist insurance, and I forget the name of the comp, the organization. She helps artists because when there's flooding or a hurricane or uh, fire or something, um, artists sometimes get totally wiped out. And I will confess, I don't think many of us think about that. And you're right, what you're saying. And the value added part. I mean, I have people come into my booth and go, "Wow." You take and turn tennis rackets into earrings, and I'm thinking, yeah, you don't know the half of it. Right. I take a, a, a tennis racket, and when I cut it up into earring stock, I get between two and three thousand dollars worth of earrings on it. I mean, that's value wow. added for sure. <laughs> well, and, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. That people racket. give you, people give you pieces of wood that mean something to them, or pieces of like a racket or something like that, a hockey stick, and you make stuff for them. And which has double meaning because it's not only the the beauty of the of the artwork, but it's also from something that means a lot to them. I mean, that's wonderful to do that. It's a cross between a uh, like a craft and an heirloom. Hmm. You know, it has so much meaning to it. My motto, the story I tell people about how my business model works, is like imagine you have a rocking chair in your house. Your grandmother was. It's very special to you and. God forbid you have a fire and it totally toasts this rocking chair. Now, you're not upset because you lost the rocking chair. You're upset because you lost the story that the Mm -hmm, rocking chair represented. mm -hmm. So you get me those burnt-up pieces of wood, and then I turn them into earrings, and the story lives on. And that's that's what the theme is. 
And how that has transpired just blows my mind. I mean, especially with Etsy. It's kind of bittersweet, but I had a lady from Vancouver, British Columbia, find me on Etsy. She lost her son a year ago, and they had a bunch of his skateboard decks. And they saw the bracelets I make from skateboard decks. And she said, if we sent you his deck, could you make bracelets? And I said, absolutely. Hmm. I said, that's, that's my whole mission. That's what I do. Now, just like training a dog or politicians or children, <laughs> any behavior rewarded gets repeated, right? Mm-hmm. That. So it started out as a $250 order. And by the time she was done, it was, a, it was an $800 order. And it's like, oh, my God, not only is this fun for me, right. there's a reward here. I'm going to do more of this. And that's what I mean about developing a creative culture where people uh, figure out how to generate income through creativity as opposed to having people say, oh, we'll do a great thing. We'll create a show for you where people can come and look at your artwork, but we don't do enough to bring people in to buy that artwork. Right. So you basically create work for somebody that doesn't generate income. And that's how artists end up needing day jobs. Right. I mean, they, they – so – you know, can you imagine if, I mean, and for me, and, and I've done this several times because most artists don't even know the difference between limited use rights versus buying the rights to your artwork. Hmm. So when you do a painting, as soon as you sign your name to that painting, it's copyrighted. It's your piece. You've created it. You don't have to do anything else. You sell the painting, but you still retain the rights to sell the image over and over again. Now, limited use rights is, uh, like I had a uh, National Bank of Middlebury, a local bank, call me up years ago and say, oh, we really love this painting. We'd like to use it for the background of a debit card. And, you know, can we get the rights to that painting? And I said, well, you don't want the rights to that painting because if I gave you a price for everything I could do to make money on that painting, it would be mind-boggling. Huh. You want the right to use it for the background of a debit card, limited use. So I will sign something that says that I don't sell it to any other credit card company and they sent me $250. And as an artist, I mean, if I, if I take a, a $10 tennis rack and get two to $3,000, neither what I can do with two or $300. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. <coughs> That's cool. So you think of all the, all the state brochures, publications, all the, the, uh, people who are making, uh, cheese and products and stuff who have labels. I mean, there's a real potential to build a creative culture. And when you build that culture and promote that culture and tell people that that culture is uh, in every aspect of the community that you're in, then a business goes, God, I could go over here, but I really like the uh, the culture that makes the potential for innovative and new. Uh, that makes me want to build, a bit, take my business to Vermont. I bet so you have can seen. You imagine, I mean, we go we go into museums now, and we go into the Egyptian room and the Greek room and the Roman room and the Persian room, and you know we're all familiar with that. But if you think about it, all those rooms are not from those cultures in their entire life. It's from those cultures when they were at their peak, when right. they were the most innovative. And there's a direct connection between that creativity and innovation and being on the forefront of the world. Because while other people are trying to do what you're doing, you're off, like, doing the next thing. I mean, you're, like, always ahead of the, uh, running ahead of the pack because yep. you're innovating. And 
Reed, I hear some music in the background. That's my signal. Uh, we have to take another break. Um, this is Pat McDonald from uh, Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, and we'll be back with Reed Prescott because I want to ask him about his idea of selling Vermont a state of innovation. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Hi there. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm here with Reed Prescott, who's an artist, oil painter turned woodworker. Um, Reed, um, I was just reading where you were hoping that maybe the state could take up the mantra of Vermont, a state of innovation. I think that would work. It's sort of very much along the same line. I was thinking about promoting the arts for people outside the state to come on here. You want to, you want to be surrounded by talented people. This is the state. Well, and it promotes our creative culture. I mean, you and I grew up hearing, like, Virginia's for lovers, and it would be used to attract people who were, like, newlyweds or whatever to Virginia, or uh, I love New York and stuff like that. If we if we took on the moniker Vermont, a state of innovation, and really enhanced and attracted innovation, it's going to attract other innovations. Um, and the stories we can tell are just amazing. But can you imagine if we all came together under that that focus, kind of like the the analogy I used earlier, where you've got the architect, the electrician, the plumber, and the construction worker, but they're all doing their own thing, and uh, somebody says, let's build a house. Well, in my mind, creating this kind of moniker is kind of like building the house. So uh, everybody's working towards the same thing. Now, what what can you do to uh, enhance the creative economy? Um, I mean, I painted that for years out of Basin Harbor. Basin Harbor is trying to attract people. How do we create a creative vacation where people pay, pay a stipend to come and work with artists for a week and they stay at a resort and you're, you're attracting tourism wow. and supporting the creative economy? I mean, I've got a friend who's a bird carver. I mean, he's world-class bird carver. He's known all over the world for his birds of prey. Uh, incredibly funny guy. He's my age. I mean, we're great friends. He does uh, these carving workshops where for seven days he uh, he takes you from a blank piece of wood to a finished, like, kestrel. And he charges $1,500 a piece just to take this workshop, and he gets 10 or 15 people in it, it for a week. I mean, that, to me, is a real creative economy. Uh, and the benefit is, is that these people come. They also tell other people about it. While they're here, they go to restaurants. They, they need a place to stay. They shop. I mean, that's the benefit of uh, enhancing our creativity to attract people. I really um, love you this. Talk about, you want to talk about innovation? I mean, you and I grew up. I mean, I don't want to, to date. Uh, we don't want to date ourselves. <laughs> in Vermont, that's now legal, so I suppose we could date ourselves. But, uh, but anyhow, um, you and I, when we grew up, uh, if you wanted ice cream, it came in a square carton. Uh, there were like nine different flavors. It cost two bucks. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, these these crazy creative people said, oh, I want to use like natural products that are really cool. 
And uh, what happens if we take a box of candy bars and we drop it from a ladder and throw it in there? <laughs> let's give it a name like Chunky Monkey. And instead of $2 for a half gallon, we're going to sell it for 350 or $4 for a quart. And people are going, you guys are nuts. It'll never survive. It'll never. I mean, that's just so out of the norm. It's just not. Well, I mean, look what happened. Right. It, it's changed the entire ice cream, not just what they do. Now, instead of going into the, the supermarket and your little carton box has six or seven flavors, now you have flavors with pieces of candy bars in it. I mean, it's that innovation that's changed how everybody sees the entire world. And we do it naturally. We just do that innovation naturally. And if we promote that, if I was a business in California and I could see that, gosh, there's a lot of innovation that comes out of this place. We should go up and see what's going on there. You know, we should we should have a, an arm there or a leg there or at least a finger in there. So That's, if you get on Wikipedia and you type, uh, you look for famous Vermonters, there's a whole list. Huh. And you go through the alphabet and you will realize that uh, every aspect of our culture or our, our U.S. history, there are people from Vermont who have their fingers in that. I mean, Wells from Wells Fargo Bank was from Vermont. Hmm. Uh, um, uh, you know, we all know about the Mormon Church, but uh, the person who designed the Biltmore Estates and the base to the Statue of Liberty was from Vermont. Uh, Leland, who started the Cadillac Company, was from Vermont. I mean, just like the list goes on. John Deere. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And like the three people I talked about before in Bristol. Why are we keeping that a secret? Mm-hmm. I mean, why doesn't, like, all these towns have these little, uh, like, historical information placards that talks about these people and the history of what they did? So when people come, I mean, if you put a sign on each side of Bristol that says the birthplace of E.B. Eddy, it would mean nothing to most of the people in the United States. But somebody from Canada driving by, they go, Evie, Eddie, really? He was from this town? I mean, all of a sudden, it attracts hmm. a certain individual. Have and you have you presented this like, idea to the state, like to Commerce and Community Development? Or, because I'm excited just listening to you talk about it, because I think this would well, work. I could talk about it forever. And, and, I mean, if you and I sat down and talked about, uh, like, once a month, and just talked about uh, aspects of a, a creative culture, I mean, after two years, we realized we still haven't mm-hmm. scratched. That's great. I mean, it is so important, but it's it's not like, uh, well, look at him. He's out painting. That must be fun. Uh, I wonder what he does for a real job. You know, we need to figure out how to get enough money mm-hmm. and enough income flowing into the or to teach them how to bring in enough money so that they can continue to do this innovation because it just leads to other people doing innovation. I mean, the true. town that I live in has so many innovators in it. I mean, the guy who developed the first MRI uh, is part of a team. Uh, the person who started Cirrus Radio. Uh, I mean, it's just like, it, it just goes on and on. And these aren't like gods that you, I mean, you go to the store and you run into Fred Danforth and you're struggling with a part of your career and he started Danforth Pewters and he says, oh, what are you working on now? It's like, well, I gotta, I'm struggling with this. And Fred goes, you know, Reed, you're doing it right. Just be patient. You know, hmm. you're doing the right thing. It'll come around. That is supportive. And that's a creative right. culture that's supportive. And because of that, my biz, I hold true. My business grows. I mean, people see what I'm doing now, and it's, it's stimulating ideas within themselves that they can do. 
And other people around the country are saying, oh, he does this. This is how I can put it to use. Interesting. A year ago, I was contacted through Etsy, and uh, the email basically said, hi, I'm the director of a museum. Uh, we really like your beads that we see on the site. If we supplied you with wood, could you make product for our gift shop? Huh. And bead bracelets are only a small part of what I do. And I said, absolutely. I say, I call it private label because I like telling the stories. I'll do a label with your story on it. Uh, you send me the wood. I make the product, put it on the label, and send it back. And I said, why? What do you have? And then she responded with, well, we just finished a three-year restoration of a Mayflower, too. And I'm oh. like, man, can I jump through these lines? I mean, it's just like, boom. And in a year's time, I've done 900 pieces for their gift shop. Uh, on top of that, if you go to their website under uh, in their shopping page under bracelets and earrings, both of my things are the number one product that they sell. And it's from somebody else seeing how they can use your innovation and compensate you. It's what we call a host-beneficiary relationship. It's like the relationship I had at Basin Harbor. It's where both parties have a role to play, and they both benefit. I go out to Basin Harbor, do the paintings. They're not paying me to do the paintings, but I'm totally thrilled because their guests can afford my artwork, and they're buying the originals. I'm not selling prints. They're buying the original. They take their originals home, and, and other people see it. Now, their friends are coming to Basin Harbor because they see this beautiful painting on the wall. Now, from their point of view, it's like, oh, it's attracting people. And Reed is like, you know, the musician or the juggler that we don't have to pay for. Huh. You know, I mean, so everybody benefits. And, and those are the relationships that we need to nurture and build. For sure. That's really great, Reed. I know um, you are now in Lincoln, and you've got um, your company is Verde Mountain, which is Green Mountain. Um, and yeah. how was that born um, um, as a way to, to get your product out there? Uh, it's kind of interesting. I mean, just like just like all things, it, it doesn't just like happen overnight. <laughs> it just kind of evolves. And some of the evolution happens, and you don't realize that there's physical reasons why things are changing, and, and you adjust to it. You just adjust. So uh, I had a storefront on Main Street in Bristol. I was trying to figure out how to have a storefront on Main Street where I could do something to bring in some income, but a place where I could also create artwork. So it started out as a uh, like a, a cooperative uh, showcase for building professionals. So uh, a person who does cabinetry would pay a, a, a quarterly fee and they would put their cabinets in there and somebody who refinished furniture would put their things. And that was the theory. Uh, somebody who does drapes and the people came in and there were these settings that were done by people. It was almost like a showcase. <laughs> now for me, I, I had two front picture windows. I sat right in one of the picture windows working on paintings, working on artwork. And uh, talk about uh, people being able to see the creative culture every day. I had people telling me that, yeah, we go we go from covers to the bank, and my kids make me cross the street so we can walk <laughs> by your shop to see what you're doing. So um, it kind of started out that way. And then uh, as part of it, uh, I realized that I couldn't put the effort selling everybody else. I felt like I was taking advantage of the other people who were uh, – uh, part of the showcase. Right. Uh, so I kind of transitioned away from that. So I started to make products in wood as a way of supplementing the income. Uh, I thought that's why I was doing. 
um, I was painting glass, and I didn't realize that uh, I had a health condition where a blood clot had gotten into my eye and created a void, and that void creates visual vertigo. Oh. So as things move in and out of that blind spot, it's like two eyes can see, uh, like I'm looking at a flower. Now, two eyes can see it. If I turn a little bit, only one eye, the two eyes, and one eye, and the brain can't adjust to that, and it creates visual vertigo. Huh. And... Um, to read, I mean, I can't read much more than a paragraph without feeling nauseous. Uh, oh. The drawings that you've probably seen on Facebook over the last three or four days. Right. I mean, I've gone through a whole bottle of Dramamine just to do those drawings. Wow, Reed. So, so uh, but being an artist, it's like, hey, guess what? Now I can cut tennis rackets. This is fun. <laughs> I mean, just like you just move on. That's great. I must say, you have a, we have to take a break, but you have a wonderful motto that says, we create so that your memories live on. That is just perfect. Anyway, we have to take a break now. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We'll be right back with Reed Prescott. Hi there. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm here with Reed Prescott. Artist, oil painter turned woodworker. And Reed, um, you live in Lincoln. You Actually, you were in Lincoln when I moved into Bristol. I think I just met you when you were visiting mom and your family. Um, can we see your – is it on display there? Because you closed Prescott Galleries in, in uh, Bristol. Is there some place where well, we can go and see what, what you uh, – all of your products and what we could buy? Well, on Etsy, you can go to Verde Mountain uh, every Saturday, or almost every Saturday through the summer and into the fall at Shelburne uh, as part of their farmer's market. I'm oh. there every, every Saturday. Uh, there's one weekend where Waterbury has an arts festival that also falls on a Saturday, so I might not be at Shelburne like that weekend unless I can get somebody to watch my booth. But um, uh, that's pretty much I mean, if you Google Verde Mountain, Vermont, I mean, you're going to find out a lot more information about me than you ever want to know. Right. Well, I know you post, uh, you do post a lot of, of your products on Facebook, which is, which is really great. And seriously, I didn't explain to you what poo means to us in my family, but yeah. my daughter and I lived with the, with poo and all the wonderful things that Wise Bear would say. So when you, when you sketched his house and, um, I just, I was like, oh my god, it was just perfect. It was. I just posted something about poo on my Facebook, and I think I don't know how many people responded about the the wisdom of poo bear, um, wise old bear. Not to, not to confuse your viewers, uh, over the weekend at the Vermont Flower Show, I was sitting in the flower show at their display sketching, and they their theme was Winnie the Pooh. And I sketched Piglet's house one day and Pooh's house another day. Right. So, oh well, it's, uh, it's. Pat and I don't talk about Pooh just. No. <laughs> every, every <laughs> well, I saw that and I'm like, oh my god, Winnie the Pooh. I love them and his dear friends. Um, we lived with. Any time I saw a, a quote uh, on whatever it was, um, I would buy it and bring it home for Stacy. Um, because it was always right on the money. Whatever you were feeling, Pooh Pooh Bear had a. Uh, I don't like. I'm sorry. Kind of like Bill Sayer. Oh, kind of like Bill Sayer. When you talk about Bill Sayer, you you can hear his voice. Oh, for sure. You did a good job before. It doesn't matter what slogan you see when you see it. Winnie the Pooh, 
you hear it in a certain voice. Right. There you go. That is Bill. That's good. Mighty good to see you. I had him on my TV show I did, I think, and I, I sort of started it by kind of imitating all of his expressions. But he's a Bristol boy now anyway. Oh yeah, he's been there for. He was there when I moved into town and uh, met him, um, met him while he was singing in church. So I got a, I got a creative story for. I mean, talk about creative culture. When I first moved to Lincoln, my wife is from Lincoln, but when I first moved to Lincoln, right before we got married, uh, it was April first of nineteen eighty one. Two weeks later, the church in the center of town burnt to the ground. uh, Good Friday, and I remember our first Easter service sitting in the Burnham Hall looking over at the smoldering ashes of the building. Now, most towns around the country would solve that problem in another, a certain way. Uh, the town that I grew up in with its creative culture said, you know what, we got a spare church up the road. It's kind of caving in, but I think if we put some turnbuckles on it, we can get the steeple straight, we'll throw it up on a truck, and we'll drive it to the center of town, and we'll put it... <laughs> to, uh, and, and that's what they did. Wow. I mean, it's just like, I mean, and, and it's like, yeah, no big deal. Yeah, right. We have my a spare church. Who has a spare church, Reed? <laughs> yeah. My that's nephew so cool. is the grandson of the, the carpenter who knew how to do the turnbuckle and stuff. Uh, when they needed to take and bring the Champlain Bridge up from the water into place, not only designed the winches that did that, the whole mechanism, but he built them. He's he's a guy who, uh, you know, when they needed to move the railroad station in New Haven, jacked it all up, put it on, and they put it on a truck and drove it. And to him and everybody else, it's like, you know, when you see him on the street, it's like you just walk into the postman. I mean, you don't you don't even, it's like, yeah, yeah, I did that. You're on to the next thing. And that's what that's I mean right. about a creative culture. Well, uh, we don't take things we make that seriously. It's just part of what we do. You do really something good. else. It's like, I'm, this is fun. Uh, so am I remembering wrong? Is the, the guy the guy that um, invented the Bic pen? Does he not live uh, in either Lincoln or Bristol, uh, up on to. top of the mountain? Yeah, he used to. Oh, he doesn't yep. anymore because well, that was some house he had. We just had a fundraiser for the Lincoln Library, and a bunch of musicians got together and decided they were going to put on a concert, charge so much a ticket, and, and I'm, I live right across from Burnham Hall, and I'm thinking, my God. Right across the street, they're having this concert. There's two Tony Award-winning performers. There you go. Another guy who's playing with them played background music on Miranda Lambert's uh, album. There's another person in town who was interviewed uh, to Jimmy Fallon and uh, um, some of the other mm-hmm. night talk shows. Who, for some reason, because of my age, it's just a you know senior moment. Um, anyhow. They were interviewed from their house, and it's like, this is a town of 1,200 people. How do, how do we get all – it's like, we don't – we're not unique. I mean, you go to Waitsfield and Warren, and right. they also have yeah. these people. And it's like and, – and, and we want to like well, – like my father-in-law said when I illustrated my first book, he said, oh, you've been hiding your talent under a bushel basket. Huh. And it's like, well, as a state, we've been hiding our culture under a bushel basket. I mean, we have innovation – that just oozes out of this place. And if I was a business, I would want to be hiring people. I, I just I, I like that. And how do we how do we get this message 
um, to folks in Montpelier that should be listening to this because I have truly, I don't know how many shows I've said this exact same thing, that how fortunate we are. No matter where you look, there's somebody with amazing, and it's not just somebody likes to sing. These are world-class people. Oh, oh, and it goes beyond that. I mean, it's like I'm telling some farmer what I did, and he says, oh, you got to come by and see the machine I made for, to clean the cups <laughs> I have. And I go over and look, and it's like, oh, my God. I can use that to make, you know, dot, you know, and it's just like, I mean, it's just like everywhere we look. So, um, yeah, I mean, and unfortunately for me, um, I'm too busy trying to make a living at this to actually really spend the time and energy that it would take to move Montpelier 10 inches. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. I've tried. Forget it. But, I mean, if they want to talk to me, I mean, like you I mean, you found out already, I can talk all day about that. Like I said, we could talk for two years, once a month for two years and not even scratch the surface on this. So, you know, I, I'm willing to talk and put my expertise in, but but I'm not going to push and force it on you because, you know, I, I've, I've got 180 pieces right now that I'm making for the Mayflower. I don't have time to. That is, I mean, to, that is amazing when you talked about the Mayflower. I mean, good grief. That's an only in Vermont and this is thing. The Mayflower too. Yeah. I mean, the actual Mayflower was destroyed, you know, probably after its right, many, voyage. But uh, just but. amazing. Anyway, I read this quote, and I think it's an appropriate way to end the show. It says, "Now is the moment to empower and invest in Vermont's creative sector, and in turn, let creativity and innovation shape an equitable and prosperous Vermont. You can't beat that." I think that that's a message that needs to be spread high and wide around here. Maybe um, that should be in our uh, publicity stuff with our slogan, you know, yeah. Vermont is state of innovation. <laughs> yeah, no, I love the whole idea. And don't yeah. you think I'm going to do something with this? You just stay tuned. You don't have to do a thing. I'm on the case. Well, anyway, I really, if you want really. Me to talk about it. I can do that. All right. You're on my list, Reed. Um, it was good to reconnect with you after all these years. The last time I saw you were working in mom's, uh, in the garage in the back of his house. That's the last time I saw you, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. and so it was great and to when talk COVID to you. Hit, because of mom's dementia, when COVID hit, I couldn't really stay out there because yeah. we couldn't get her to, we couldn't like train her to not go into her own garage. So I moved everything up to Lincoln. Oh, after, I see. After I got pretty much stayed here. Yeah. Well, you picked a good place to stay. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Reed. I really appreciate it. Give my love to your wife and family and those in Bristol. I love that town. This is Pat Will McDonald, do. your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We'll see you on Thursday. Good show coming up. And don't forget to vote. <laughs>